0: Welcome to us with me, Dr. Crystal Lee Crane, where we have critical conversations on the challenges of our time. Come dig in with me and my guests as we tackle critical discussions about the hard lines we draw regarding morality, inequality, and the spirit. Listen while we focus on the intersections of truth and justice as we learn how to coexist, pushing our social transformation to the next level. Let's get ready to be inspired and engage in questions about humanity and believe in a different world as we look forward to listeners who want to experience media from an intersectional and healing justice perspective. Us with Dr. Crystal Lee starts now. Hello everyone, I'm Dr. Crystal Lee Crane and you are listening to us on Transformation Talk Radio. Stay with us for the next hour as we talk with thought leaders about the impact of the racial reckoning of the January 6th interaction. We are all sitting with the reality a year ago there was a violent insurrection at the US Capitol where white supremacists and supporters of the 45th president tried to overturn the 2020 election. While this was not the first or the last that there has been a harsh reckoning for the racialized violence that happens in this country, it is the first time we saw a massive scale action against the Capitol and our democracy. To make some sense of it all, I'm bringing two guests on to talk about the intersections of these issues, the impact it's having on our lives and our experience of democracy. So today let's welcome my first guest, Professor Crystal Dixon. Hi Crystal. Hey there. Professor Dixon is an assistant professor of practice in the Department of Health and Exercise Science at Wake Forest University. Dixon's teaching and scholarship addresses the intersection of environmental racism, climate change, sustainability, and public health. As a racial equity consultant, Dixon is actively working to implement institutional change to address structural racism in the healthcare system in higher education. Thank you for adding your voice to this conversation. Thank you. So as a- yes. As an intersectional thought leader and educator, I'm really excited to talk with you about the insurrection as aftermath. So let's dive in. Now that we are a year past the January 6th insurrection, how are you experiencing the realities that day revealed to so many? First, Dr. Crane, thank you for inviting me here.
1: I think that's an amazing question and a very sad question we have to think about. I, you know, I just think like it shows that our democracy is at stake. I mean, you know, it, it's just like, just it's violent rhetoric is dangerous and, create, and can create anarchy. If that is what it showed me, cause that's what sparked that was just violent rhetoric. And it only takes that for people to go and come together and decimate the very symbol that stands for our democracy. And, you know, it's just really sad. So that's where I am. I feel like our democracy is extraordinarily fragile right now, and we have to do something to rebuild it um, for this
0: country. That's my first instincts on that question. And and I feel you on that because when I think about the fragility of democracy, um, I think about my teenage heart and my love for journalism and how it was really coupled with my love for the idea of democracy. I was a philosophy nerd and I really, you know, at 13, I was in love with Plato. So, like, I just really, (laughs) really early on accident. And I and I so my heart gets broken often in this country. And so, one of the things is this idea of fragility and democracy, and it and it does require participation.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And and while the constitution protects certain parts of participation, I don't think this was constitutionally protected participation or legal. Right. So we already have over 700 people arrested, and we know there were more than 700 people there. Hmm. Hmm. And so. As someone who works for racial justice and who is, has an unwavering commitment to this work, like how has it impacted you? You know,
1: when you, when you were in this work, like you and I are, you this is not a surprise. It's just a reminder that regard, it, it seems like, it's almost like regardless of what you do, we know that there's a system in play that has been designed to withstand almost anything. And you can get kind of discouraged, but then you realize, you know, I'm hopeful because there's these new generation of folks coming up that are becoming more sensitive to equity that don't look like me. And so I'm more excited about the fact that this movement is starting to diversify and we're not out here by ourselves. You know what I mean? So while I'm on one hand broken to know that, there are gatekeepers that are supposed to, the security at, you know, the capital was supposed to be on our side actually was part of the movement. On the other hand, I'm excited of the new reckoning and awakening of our younger generations coming up saying, hey, this is not right. I want to do something about that. So I'm kind of leaning towards the latter so I can feel like I'm not alone. <laughs> um, you know, that we have people coming behind us and some people that are just within our generation starting to come over as well. So, um, but- It's just starting to realize that the system and goes a lot deeper um, than the system that you're often in. It's it's in all the systems, um, down to our government.
0: I felt that too. Like I mean, you know, some of my experiences, but also the idea that you know, when people of color saw what was happening at the Capitol, Mm -hmm. well, knew it. The the escalation of fear for me went up. Yeah. Of color and as a woman of color, because it, it felt like this level of lawlessness that was uncontrollable, yeah, means that there's nowhere for me to go for help,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and yeah. that I don't feel like people are talking about because yeah. it's, it's not the it's it, regardless of the politics, regardless yeah. if the 45th president had anything to do with it, the, the fear that it conjured. Yeah, um, is too much, right? And and I feel like, um, it was like nine eleven or you know the Oklahoma City bombings or Columbine, like different things, mm-hmm. um, like the Pulse, you know, um, you know, massacre, like the different things that were shaping of us, yeah. like, us at culturally. This was one of those things.
1: Yeah.
0: So you know, for you, love, like how how has this shaped you yeah. or, in the, you know, or, and reshaped your perspectives, you know, personally and then professionally um, as
1: yeah. a consultant? Yeah, that's a really, I'll appreciate your perspective because that's the same way I was feeling, was like, wow, that is the, that's at least who I thought at least could protect the little bit of us that we had left. And that was completely stripped from us. And it was almost like, you were in denial about the truth. You know, it's like, it's like, it's like we saw America showed its undergird and its under dirty belly and of its, you know, we thought we kind of seen the worst of it. But that was like, the bandaid was ripped off, right. And we were like, oh yeah, we thought we had your back, but yeah, this is the reality of what it is. Like all the masks came off. And so to like your point, there was a sense of just feeling a bit naked and like exposed of just no security. It was all just a front <laughs> this whole time. As far as my work, and particularly in environmental racism and justice, we know there's, there, there have been government sanctioned racist policies in place from the, from the 30s. And to see that expand to not just environmental issues, just the very existence of being Black in this country. You know, one of my good friends, um, you may know, um, her name is, she, she's here at Wake Forest. She's uh, Dr. Melissa Harris-Perry. One of the things she mentioned to me when this just happened was this is an indication that whiteness showed that it likes to destroy everything it owns. And she said that publicly and it stuck with me because no matter what they have, whether they're privileged or not, they are going to destroy it to show that that is mine whenever they're ready. So yeah, so say all that to say, it just feels like, you know, we have to be systemic, intentional when we're making these efforts. And unfortunately to take advantage of who's in office matters because the moment that a previous president took over in that case, it was Trump, he rolled back all the EPA guidelines immediately. And essentially, you know, and so we had to go and re, you know, and so it's just trying to work fast and, and strategically under specific administrations is what I'm learning is key. And even that doesn't mean it's going to be as effective as you like Concerning what happened on the, on the sixth.
0: I'm, you know, I'm really glad that you came with that broader analysis because it is an intersectional and it is all connected. And the, the allowances that happened during the 45th president's um, tenure in office I don't, I don't say his name for my own mental health sake, (laughs) (laughs) the the ways in which so many things were allowed and Mm -hmm. shifted the ways in which people created, crafted, and implemented policy across the country. Mm -hmm. And, and to me, that is a mortifying fact that I, um, I don't think that you need to have a political science degree to understand it's human behavior, right? think that we look at leaders in a you know that have a title and put them in a position where we stop looking at them as people like mm-hmm. we would neighbor mm-hmm. let our neighbor if their dog bark too loud at night but we vote against a president that's right that forces a coup or tries to force a coup mm-hmm. and so i mean it's it's an oversimplification but really it's not um because at the end of the day. These are people that we're entrusting with our resources, with our lives, essentially, mm-hmm. with our protection. Um, and and we have to look at them as suspect at this point.
1: I would have to agree with you on that. And, you know, I heard a quote. Um, it was this guy. I don't know him personally, but Bart Gelman, He's a staff writer at The Atlantic. He said, insurrection that goes unpunished is just rehearsal for the next one. So I'm like you, Dr. Crane, sitting here in fear. Okay, if you were arrested, but, you know, when is this going to happen again? And how do I prepare for that? Um, why is this happening? You know, it start, you start to question the morality of this country. And what are we doing?
0: And And I like that, like the morality of this country and like, Can we? Do we know who's around us and 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 what does community mean? Right. And so, some people are calling what's happened a reckoning, right? Mm A racial reckoning, a reckoning for our democracy, a reckoning for the the actual value of how the Constitution is written Mm -hmm. and going to continue to be interpreted on context in our time, or if it's going to be rewritten. Right. So, Mm -hmm. like in the idea of reckoning, like, do you agree with that assessment and why? I mean,
1: racial reckoning. I mean, I think it's really interesting because I don't believe people just don't know that this exists. I, I think there are some individuals that honestly are so privileged where they don't have to think about their position in society. So you can argue that they don't know. But I think the only reckoning that this was is that just how deep the system of white supremacy ran. You know what I mean? And and I, and I, and I and to your point, that fear that we all felt, particularly as people of color and black women specifically, was like, holy crap. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Um, but I, I, I don't, I mean, even, I just don't think a racial, I mean, I think white people know who has power. I don't know why they would be surprised. You know okay. what I mean? Um, and so I, 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 I vacillate. That's a great question. I, I, I struggle with that because I think a lot of people, when they realize the power they have, they struggle with giving it up, but I don't think they just were surprised.
0: You know, I don't know. I'd be curious to know your perspective on that. And, and, you know, I dig that because so like, when I think of reckoning, like, it's like, it does imply like a a new awareness. Right. Um, and in my, my heart, and I guess this is a hopeful part of me is that like, when I say reckoning, I'm like, you may already know, but now you got to do something. Right. so so my thought was like, I, I was, I, I have been disappointed, um, and I continue to be disappointed with the lack of action, um. And reaction and response, like, you know, actual, like, legitimate, useful response to, you know, what's happening from our white allies. Mm -hmm. Uh, And as someone with a white mother. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, she's the only white person I give all my my work to. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) My mommy was, like, she also, like, receives it. And, like, she's amazing. And, like, it's not... You know, but I like, it's It's not our job to do that for them. And I think that like mm-hmm. often happen and like when someone says white supremacist, white folks will say, okay, well, let me talk to the pers- pe- people of color that I know. Mm-hmm. And let them know what I should do because that seems like the easiest route for them. When in all reality, all they're doing is perpetuating the things that limit their ability to be in racial justice circles because they're not taking still full re- personal responsibility for living in a white supremacist culture and still mm-hmm. even with that privilege doesn't mean you accept it. Right. Right. And that guilt and shame has nothing to do with us. Mm-hmm. Right. But like, that's where, that's where I get a lot of responses. Right. And then, and then, you know, the, uh, some amount, like I get responses of like, I, it may not be my place to ask this, but may I.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, oh, <laughs> right. And
0: I'm like, oh, isn't that sweet? Or I'll get a um, I'll get a, <laughs> I'll get a um, a question like, I don't want to offend you, but I want to ask something about this because I know that you do this, and you know, and that's better than because you're a person of color, I'm gonna yeah. ask about white supremacists. Mm-hmm. That's where people get stuck because they feel like they're gonna ask the wrong question, rather than mm-hmm. how to figure out, you know how to ask the question that they need to Mm -hmm. the fact that the questions that they're asking, we definitely have an answer for, but the delivery means everything. Right. Exactly. Exactly. That's a really good point. And the healing that needs to happen so we can attack this together, like in a loving way and make sure that we don't get caught into this web of deceit and lies is that is when we need our allies to like step up and say, I'm going to be brave enough to be vulnerable and maybe ask the wrong question and let you not necessarily correct me, but tell me like the answer and like, let me love you through it. Right. Like, I think, I think that's what's necessary. What do you think?
1: Yeah. you know what, to add to that, because that's a, such a good point is that you're operating in your privilege, expecting me to pro- help you process my oppression, my, my experience that's privilege in and of itself, because now you're potentially triggering me or creating more trauma on me and expectation on me that I'm not obligated to give you number one. Number two, to your point, a lot of white allies or even people who are coming exposed to this reckoning, I'm like, they're, they're operating the sense of perfectionism. And if they don't get it right perfectly, because a lot of times whiteness likes to be perfect, and so if they're not perfectly supportive in this space, they'll um, say, I am, um, I'm just not combative. I'd rather be hands off. No, what it is, is you want to be perfect in your role and you're not going to be perfect. So I just, you know, encourage white allies and others, it's, you, you, you're going to fail because you never had to think about, you know, not being privileged, right? I'm being perfect. excuse me. So
0: that's, that's my thought on that. And that's beautiful because um, I don't know if you got a chance to read the book of uh, Four Hundred Souls. I've heard uh, of that. And so there's a uh, the very beginning of the book. There's a chapter and there's a quote in there that I can't forget mm-hmm. because it means so much. And it says, "Whiteness is a ledge you can only fall from." Wow. And it and it made me think about like, my philosophy around collect. And when I think about the impact of racism, that it hurts all of us and it is dismantling our humanity across all boundaries. Yes. And, and when we say it that way, whiteness is alleged we can only fall from, which is a book 400, um, from 400 uh, souls, but it is uh, one of the authors. Um, I'll make sure to put it in my page, but the, that is fact and oh, cool. this is what you're speaking about. Right. Um, and so, one of the things, right, the last uh, one of the last questions, and if maybe we have time for two more, but sure. this, you know, so like recently there's been discord in the Republican Party regarding how to describe the January 6th um, insurrection. Actually, not just recently, from day one, but the RNC put out, right, that the um, actions of January 6th were legitimate political discourse. So, in that vein, Describe your understanding of what happened.
1: I guess <laughs> I I think earlier I I kind of may have referenced it a little bit earlier, and I can go back and say in terms of anarchy and how you know violent rhetoric, you know, I feel like it was like this permission was granted to those that are in a specific um, you know extremist group or whoever. They're identifying themselves as at this point to just have at it, you know, and it gave them permission to literally increase their power they already had to show the to show the country who they were. I think it was an organized attack against democracy to regalvanize. Or to reclaim who they who was running the country. And this is another thing that was interesting. A lot of those folks that were CEOs, bank owners, doctors, and lawyers. They weren't people that were thinking who they were, right? And they came from counties. These insurrectionists came from counties where white counties were on the, the white people were on the decline. And so there's an agenda there, particularly, and, and you have to help me with this, Dr. Crane, because there's a, a, an author that quotes the Browning of America. I feel like there's some kind of intersection between the realities that this country is becoming more diverse and this group of individuals that were given permission to designate capital.
0: Well, I think when folks are talking about the Browning of America, from my understanding, it's about the fact that I said that by like 2050, um, the majority of the people will be mixed race and mm-hmm. born here. And as someone who's like black, white and Native American, um, mm-hmm. That's exciting to me. Um, it's a good thing. Because finally, then someone who's born like me in twenty years won't feel um, as unique mm-hmm. or or not accepted. Um, and uh, I think that's important, right? Like, and I think that there's there's some validity in that when you're thinking about the the true impact of racism and the like, the the emotional harms separatism does to human beings, like in mm-hmm. on these on these false pretenses, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so my last question, because we just have a couple of minutes, um, and I know I alluded to this earlier um, in our private conversation, mm-hmm. um, and it does connect. So after George Floyd died um, in 2020, you know, there were protests all across the country and mm-hmm. um, proudly um, I support them. The, the protests were peaceful, and they were not anarchy. After that, um, a number of institutions, the American Psychological Association, the American Public Health Association, and the Stanford Children's Hospital put out statements, right, mm-hmm. regarding their, their anti-racism stance, but their understanding of the connection between racism and trauma. Mm-hmm. I want to read this statement. A um, couple statements and then sentences, and I want to get your perspective on that. Sure. So they wrote As we navigate our way through the COVID 19 pandemic, we have a collective responsibility to keep the well being of children and youth at the forefront of our response and recovery. We must also recognize racism, discrimination, and race based violence. Creates additional stress and trauma for youth, exacerbating the already significant challenges that youth of color have experienced during the pandemic, and threatening the further widen existing mental health inequalities impacting communities of color. How does that sit with you, love? I feel like that
1: organization is starting to have a an understanding to an extent of that this is not something that just happened. I, I feel like that was one of the better statements, honestly, I've heard. Um, and, you know, that it's, there's some humanism there, there's some empathy there, there's, some, there's a racial analysis there a little bit. And I feel like they're actually understanding and accepting that, you know, this is a compounding moment that we have been dealing with historically, um, particularly with our youth. And I love that emphasis. And I know, Dr. Crane, you do some, some, some work with youth as well. Um, and I think that was really, because I'm, you know, of course, I am not know the organization, but people aren't talking about how it affected the kids. You know, so I, I've, and from what I've heard compared to other statements that were extraordinarily bland, <laughs> I thought that was
0: pretty powerful. Um, you know, um, that's my initial reaction to that. I mean, one of the things that I loved was like, it talked about COVID-19, it it did. Talked about racism in general, discrimination mm-hmm. to a lot of people in their perspectives and how they understand the world. And then they specifically said race-based violence, which I yes. think needs to be said. It needs to be said out loud and it needs to be understood as something that is actually a norm in this country mm-hmm. and, and something that, as we discussed before was directly involved in the fervor of the January 6th insurrection. Yeah. And, and I feel like while us as adults with <laughs> full and somewhat capacities to address it, um, we have to always remember the young people, right? And to really um, figure out like how to support them as adults and as allies to young people, right? I agree. I, I
1: totally agree. Um, and so, then I, mm-hmm. I'll go ahead. Oh, my internet might be acting. Um, so I, I, I think that the fact that the Biden administration had passed protection of one demographic of people and not another um, is problematic.
0: I don't know if you can hear me, Dr. Crane. Um, I can. You're doing great. Thank you. Well, that's all we have for now. Thank you so much, Professor Crystal Dixon, for being a guest on us. And um, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you. Pleasure to be here.
2: Are limitations holding you back from living a powerful and authentic life? Are you able to see yourself and others through a lens of empathy and compassion? Tune into Awaken Your Truth with me, Ritika Rose, to discover how to free your mind, heal your life, and embody your power second and fourth thursdays at 9 a.m pacific on transformation talk radio youtube and across all podcast stations i'm on a mission to inspire a shift in you so together we can collectively heal the world to learn more about me visit ritikarose.com. have you heard about shifting the collective vibration and consciousness on the planet
0: Join me, Kimberly Barrett, on the Sharing Love and Light Show every first and third Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern at TransformationTalkRadio.com
2: to explore the depth of vibration and consciousness on our planet and learn how you can shine your love and light. To learn more, visit
0: SharingLoveAndLightShow.com.
2: Are you living life or is life living you? The destination may not be clear when we seek change, but we
1: trust we cannot stay where we are. Healing and transformation coach Trish Campbell strengthens the mind-body-spirit connection. Diane McLeod generates positive change by shifting perspective through choice. Get connected and gain clarity on The Shift Podcast every 1st and 3rd Friday at 12.30pm Pacific on TransformationTalkRadio.com.
2: Visit InVibe.ca for more info. Hi, I'm Bonnie Minku, ADHD coach. People with ADHD can be vastly different from each other, but one thing most ADHD adults have in common is a poor time sense, an unrealistic idea of how long things take to do. With a really poor time sense, what you probably expect to get done in a day, only Superman could accomplish. Yet after barely getting through a fraction of your to-dos, you end each day feeling inadequate and ashamed that you didn't finish at all. The problem lies in your magical thinking about time. To get real, compare how long you think something will take you to do with the reality. For at least seven tasks, write down how many times longer each one really took than what you had guessed. Then use that information to plan. Learn more about Time Sense and other strategies in my podcast, ADHD Self Mastery Customized Solutions for Your Unique Brain. Hello, everyone.
0: We're back. I'm your host, Dr. Crystal Lee Crane, and you're listening to us on Transformation Talk Radio. Up next, we have a very special guest, Garrett Arwa, with the National Democratic Redistricting Committee. Hi, Garrett. Thank you for joining us.
3: Dr. Crane, good to be here. <laughs>
0: Garrett serves as the National Political Director for the National Democratic Redistricting Committee, a position he has held since April of 2019. In that role, he oversees a political effort that pushes for key resources to elected leaders and key allies involved in the redistricting process in every state in the country. And he helps develop a state specific strategy to fight for fair maps. Garrett is a longtime thought leader in democratic political spaces. And that's why I invited you here today, Garrett. So I'm very curious, because I know that you're in the D.C. area, um, to continue this conversation on the January 6th insurrection, where were you when, when it happened?
3: You know, I think this is the first time that I have spoken to somebody else in any kind of structured setting about my January 6th experience. And I think everybody in D.C. and definitely everybody in the DMV has their story now, I was in Navy Yard, which is literally two or three blocks away from the Capitol. Um, In part, it's a neighborhood people move to so that they have proximity to power. That is a big thing in D.C., particularly if you do work on, quote unquote, the hill. And there was a lot of people in our neighborhood and our building who worked in the Capitol and would walk to work every day. We were that close. I think it was like any other day where I was glued to Zooms all day. And it was interesting because you get so sucked into what you were doing in the Zoom sitting in front of your computer life that you tend to tune out the rest of the world. As you said, I engage in a fight for fair maps which takes my work all over the country. It means that I need to be laser focused on what I am doing. And I was for a good amount of the day oblivious to what was happening which is interesting because on our street, there were first police, then first responder, then military vehicles, then police first responders and military vehicles from surrounding states all coming through our neighborhood. My fiance had to come in and say, do you understand what is happening right now? And I had no idea. And it's not super unusual to see a police presence in the city of DC, like shootings are at an all time high. Um, we, We know that this is a city where there is a lot of police, but to see that amount of vehicles from other states was different. And that's when I turned on the TV. And that's when I saw what I think a lot of people are calling, in part, the destruction of our democracy. It was a surreal experience to see. It was surreal realizing how close it was and in the moment, it was very hard to control your emotions, right? We were a couple blocks away. So some folks from their perspective could say that they were safely away. A lot of folks were like, we are very close to an armed insurrection of domestic terrorists. We'd all seen what the country had just gone through with the global pandemic, with the 2020 elections. And I think shell shocked and saddened was the best way to describe. I remember in the days after, January sixth, they had created a militarized barricade around critical buildings that I'd never seen before, right? And everybody would go and like, they had the whole city of DC on padlocks. I mean, you couldn't get within 500 feet of many buildings, not just the Capitol, the Supreme Court and other buildings. I, it's one of those moments that you say would never happen and then it happens And then all of a sudden, every horrible thing that could happen was completely possible. Um, This is not the first time that our U.S. Capitol has been stormed. It's the first time in a long time. Uh, And like it's like 9-11. It's like when Barack Obama was elected president. It's one of those days that you just remember every second of that day. And you will probably tell that story over and over again. I'm happy. First time I told my story was on the show.
0: Well, thank you. And I, I knew you would have one. Um, <laughs> and, um, and these are the kind of conversations that I want to have because we are people in the work, um, but we are also people. And, and we are experiencing what it is to watch democracy being threatened. And especially as people, and I'll speak for myself and make an, an assumption about you, that the democracy in this country is a comfort in some levels. And so the shell shock, sad. Yes. I was devastated. Um, I. Was in Philadelphia at the time and I was also on zoom (laughs) in a meeting, but I had the news going on mute in the background. So I looked over. And I said, (laughs) I got off mute. I said, excuse me, we need to stop this. Do you all know what's going on right now? And I was like, everyone get off camera and go on mute and go look at the news. And then we'll talk about it. We need to hold the agenda because it was a turning point. For me, 9 11 was right after I graduated high school and um, to age myself. But I I remember I was
3: already in college. Don't worry about it.
0: and I remember I was working in a newspaper. I was a journalist. organized as a full-time journalist in a newspaper at that time. And all of the phones rang. Started. It was just like, you know, it's just, just this moment in time, right? And so for us, right, as people, like I said, in the work who, who feel what this means, like how has it impacted you as a person? And like how is it shaping or, or reshaping your work?
3: Uh, I think there are many of things that have happened in the last Several years that have made people who look like you and I consider physical safety in a way that we never have before. Um, Now, look, physical threats are something that you always think about in DC, particularly if you have proximity to any like key structure or installation. um, You know, DC could be a target. But to think that we would be so close to that kind of physical danger. And I think based on what we have seen from these domestic terrorists, like there's nothing to assume that anybody who looked like you and me that would be walking by that mob would not face physical danger. I think for me personally, it has made me flip my view. Like I work in politics and politics and and, and even in movement politics, not just partisan politics, like proximity to power is important. Now I look at it at the reverse. I was like, I need a degree of distance because this just got too real all of a sudden in a way that it was very, very hard for me to process. So I think physical safety number one um, and not ever expecting that kind of mob threat in the city of DC. Like you expect other potential physical attacks to be in their own possibility, not a mob of people. And like every mob of people I've ever been in in DC has been a peaceful, peaceful protest and I've been in many of them, right? So even with that many people animated, I'm not used to feeling in danger, I'm actually more used to feeling love in that environment. And this is the first time that I've ever questioned that, an actual physical living proximity to a place being a negative when it used to be a positive. Now, how has it impacted my work? I think particularly for for those folks, not just in politics, but particularly for my friends in movement politics who work on some very tough issues, who work in marginalized communities and deal with that trauma already, you have to take threats seriously in a way that you didn't have to. You know, we got a, a state Senate candidate in Michigan talking about let's just bring guns to the polls. Now, five years ago you uh, that's just you know a crazy gun loving whoever talking what they say, he could bring a gun. Now I think that's a very serious, incredible threat, and that's something that like really, really, really concerns me. you know and and, and when we hear, Larger threats to democracy, because this was an assault on democracy. It was a response to the democratic process. Anything that I may have thought was out of House of Cards or a Tyler Perry show, like, that's real. We're going to take over the Electoral College on some like Illuminati types. that, that, That could happen. And there are folks actively talking about it. The fact that we have to take some of the most fantastical threats extremely serious is a sad debt. Now, I think that has happened, frankly, ever since Donald Trump got elected in 2016. I think there are others who may say that this threat has always been real since this country elected its first black president. And some people have said, you know, we've been under assault like this our entire lives and the entire history of this country. But something definitely changed on January 6th. I think the Farcical and fantastical have to be taken as real threats and have to be like run to ground as such.
0: I'm with you on that. And um, I think different things change at different times. Barack Obama's election meant the very world to me. And um, it opened so many folks hearts. I think about since the election of the 45th president, the amount of racialized violence has gone up hundreds of percentage points and their, the lack of response, the lack of protection that I, I feel communities of color know and now are experiencing in an unfettered way, again, is is um, important to name and to not stop talking about. So I'm really glad that you brought that into the conversation because the for me, it was the fear aspect of who are my neighbors? Um, Who who are these folks? You know, the the number of arrests for the folks at the January 6th insurrection keep going up. Um, I'm working with an interdisciplinary panel of folks looking at the mental health um, aspects of life, the, the states where the number of insurrections came from. And the anti-CRT laws and voter suppression. And we're looking at all of these things and how they're connected, right? Because they are. Mm-hmm. And I think gaps in the actualization of people's rage or disdain for such inappropriate, inhumane, just downright wrong behavior is the lack of understanding of the connections between all of these things.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: One of the things that I feel like speaks to that was the RNC's voting to censure uh, Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, right? And while that is a a high level, high brow, quote unquote, like uh, approach or jab, it also speaks to the perception of millions of Americans that January 6th was, what did they call it, like just Normal political discourse, mm-hmm. and because you are who you are, and you 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 know what's happening in in these states and in their states, I'm sure in particular, how did that sit with
3: you? I I was saddened but not surprised. Like, let's just say the the party system in America is in the worst state it's been, and while. I think in the context of January six, and frankly, so much of what I talk about, we are lifting up you know conservatives as the enemies, but it's on both sides. Both sides are more polarized than they ever have been. That is driven by safer districts where you can act like a crazy person, and that actually is an advantage on both sides, and not the other way around. It's driven by an endless like every second news cycle, uh, and it is causing this problem where. More young voters are not identifying with either party. So I am predicting right now, this is a very big fissure in the erosion of the party system. Who knows what democracy is going to look like going forward. Um, I don't necessarily know that we can maintain this two party system. And I think we are starting to see the polarization pull it apart. Um, I worked for uh, a great environmental champion who lived in the Bay. And one of the things that he would say to me about Republicans and I, Republicans are never gonna, they don't care about the planet. They don't care about equal representation. They don't care about safety for black bodies or equal pay for, they don't care about none of this. He says, if we do not give people the space to be able to differ, disagree, and take in new information, then we're st- stuck in this Pyrrhic war where we are just trying to win an increasingly small part of the pie which is turning everybody off, right? For the folks that are like, I didn't know what happened in January 6th, but this just shows that the system is broken. Folks, that say, I do know what happened on January 6th, it shows the system is broken. Like that is very, very sad. And like, we are not talking about a polarizing issue. We are not talking about choice. We are not talking about gun rights. We are talking about the person who won being the winner And like Newsflash, this was not the closest presidential election ever, and not even close to the closest presidential election ever. This is also not the first close presidential election that was driven by a white hegemony that was concerned with where the country was going. If we look back to 1876, Samuel Tilden, Democrat, actually got 50% plus one of the popular vote only person ever to get 50% plus one of the popular vote and lose because four states were contested and how did they determine who would be the president? Pick the governor of Ohio if he would remove the troops from the South, thus ending reconstruction, right? This is not the first time a close election has had a direct correlation to a white hegemony fighting for what they want this country to be. And I think you are starting, like when I see Mitch McConnell agreeing with me, You know, we got a problem on one side and I'm not saying that our side is devoid of issues or polarization, but like, this is not controversial. I do think in the short term, it's okay for the Republican party to do this, right? If you look at how the the particular congressional maps have been drawn in a lot of Republican states, we are looking at more Republicans in safe seats than ever before. They want to build a Republican party that doesn't have Liz Cheney, that doesn't have Adam Kinzinger. The problem with either party building to the extremes is eventually if you are going to maintain any kind of workable majority that can imagine do things for the American people that we need, you're going to have to win in a diversity of places. You can't do that if you are only pushing people to the polar opposites. Now, I think what people don't want to hear is like, what choice did the Republican Party, the party of Trump have in this situation? You know, it is not Standard for any Republicans to speak out against Trump. This is like the, probably the most important thing in terms of Trump holding on to power. Like the Republican Party's hands were tied. The second anybody spoke out against it, unless their name was Mitch McConnell, they were going to get it. So I'm not surprised. Um, I would also not be surprised on an issue on our side if we didn't see this from our own folks. That's what's wrong with the party system. We're pushing people to the polls. There's nobody in the middle except for the American people who are saying, I don't care about blue and red. I just care about being able to live the same life that everybody else has.
0: And, and having choices and not having to make choices in fear. And I think exactly,
3: climate, exactly.
0: It created this climate of fear and anxiety and just distrust. And like emotionally, I'm disappointed in us as a collective. Um, and I know that there's so many of us doing so much, as much as we can to prevent this dismantling of, of people, of communities, of parties, of issue, like issue alignment. I mean, all of the things that we, we do and spend our time, right? Um, I wanted to give you the opportunity. I know you spoke a little bit about the racism and some of um, that as being you know, a part of your analysis around January 6th. And some of it is also folks are calling it a reckoning around of course our democracy, but around extremism and our tolerance of that. Um, can you speak to that a little bit about this, this idea of like what we're tolerating?
3: Yeah, I, I, I do not think it is a reckoning. I think it is, it is a more sensational version of what many of us have been seeing our entire lives than we've ever seen before. But like, this is not a reckoning nor is it a surprise that this happened and that this is the reaction. I do worry about the normalization of extremism here. I think I particularly worry with the right, because like, I know plenty of Republicans who were against what happened on January 6th, who were against many of the things that Donald Trump did as president and worked actively to elect somebody else, supported Republicans in every other level of the ballot. But there were some Republicans who were actually in the middle. And of course, like now, those folks um, are going to continue to fight as hard as humanly possible. Um, But I do think that there is more of a reckoning with folks who are in the middle, or tend to lean more conservative, would probably not consider themselves racist, would probably not consider themselves homophobic, would probably not consider themselves sexist, would probably say that they uphold the rights of democracy, believe everybody should vote, um, probably even believe for citizenship for, for, uh, for non-citizens, are excusing what happened on January 6th. It's like the second that becomes easy to excuse, then we've lost any hope of establishing any kind of common ground. And it goes back to the polarization of the parties. I just I think it is hard to watch folks do mental gymnastics trying to defend what happened. And again, like not a controversial issue. This is not opinion based. It's you don't Storm the US Capitol because you lose the election. Like that should be pretty simple. And to see folks rationalizing it is akin to the US rationalizing Japanese internment, which this country did before, to upholding forced sterilization, which the US Supreme Court has done before, to denying the right to vote to many citizens, which this country has done before. Like I think those things seem crazy now. And at the time there was a lot of people saying, well, this is why things need to be this way. And I just, I wanna see how this plays out in the future. What I'm most worried about, what I'm always worried about in these situations, it just turns people off in politics in general. And then these elections and power is determined by the few people who do know that their vote matters and not the few who could change this country, but don't believe anybody works for them.
0: Right, and and that's what I'm hearing amongst my family, not of course, as much with my friends, um, but I feel like that—that that doubt and distrust, because there are, of course, as you name, historical examples when the extremism pushes us to a point of of collective cognitive dissonance, and we're no longer able to even hold ourselves accountable for our own actions.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: A lot of people get hurt in those dynamics, and I think that that's a part of where I think we are. Right. I agree. Um, and, and one of those things, and I want you to speak on that as it relates to voter suppression, because I know that's a big part of your life and the ways in which that's showing up, again, to me, all of these things are connected. Um, and, and I'd really like you to speak on what's been happening as, I mean, already elections are yeah. in a handful of states across the country. Um,
3: where are you at with that? So I'm pretty simple. My theory of change is that The vote is important. If everybody voted, we would have a different country. I don't necessarily know if we would have a better country, but I think we would have a better country that would be more representative. And I think the right to vote is critical. And we are seeing the biggest wave of voter suppression laws passed in this country that we have seen since Jim Crow. And that's something my boss, former Attorney General Eric Holder says. So you can take that to the bank that that is a real statistic. This is even a bigger wave of voter suppression bills than we saw after the Shelby decision, where the Supreme Court eviscerated the Voting Rights Act that is still under assault right now. And 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 like you you have to just understand what they are trying to do to realize how crazy this is. There's a lawsuit in federal court right now about a Florida bill that would make it illegal for you to give water to somebody standing in line to vote. That's what they are trying to do in some of these states. The first ballots are being cast in Texas. The first, and, and we, this report, this, it broke my heart. There was a report early on from a local elections clerk in Texas after new draconian voter suppression regulations were put in place. I think they had a, the first hundred absentee ballots of the 2022 elections mailed in. Based on the new regulations, Over half of those ballots were invalidated, over half of those ballots. That is over 50% of voters being disenfranchised. And it is being done, particularly in states that are changing so drastically. You look at Texas, you look at Arizona, you look at Georgia. Texas and Arizona are the fastest changing states demographically in the country and have been over the last decade. Like they... There are folks in power who see where this country is going, and again, the white hegemony that wants to stay in power has to stop it. The easiest way that they can do that is, one, to draw themselves into more permanent majorities. That's the fight that I've been engaged in for the last three years with the National Democratic Redistricting Committee, where they make it harder for us to vote. So though their folks can actually go to the ballots. We face those threats in Ohio, we face them in Michigan, we face them in Wisconsin. This is not just a Deep South thing. I do think that there is going to be a big fight over voting rights in the next decade. We saw the inability because of the racist institution of the U.S. Senate filibuster, the inability to pass first For the people and then the Freedom to Vote Act that would have reformed voting rights across the country. You're seeing the vestiges of these systems that understand where this country is going, that it is going to be majority minority, or we will be the majority soon enough. And it scares them. And they have the next decade to try to tamp down on democracy in as many ways as humanly possible. And thank God that there is a whole big, beautiful, vibrant movement out there fighting back every day under some tough conditions. And I do what I do in part just to support the great work that some of those folks have been doing since before I was even born.
0: Right. And I appreciate that. And I, you know, I know a lot of folks just learned a bunch of what you just said. I, I did see that news report um, from Texas this morning and I was like, come on, like, mm-hmm. so, um, I wish we had more time, but we're going to have to, to wrap up. I appreciate you.
3: I'm, I'm sure- happy to be on. I will come on at any point. Yeah. Talk about whatever the news of the day is. You just let me know.
0: We'll do that. Thank you. Um, I'm honored to have these conversations with such a breadth and depth of thinkers um, and to really look at like what the January 6th insurrection has meant to us and how it's connected to all these different political issues. Join the conversation next time on Wednesday, March 23rd at 3 p.m. Pacific. I'm your host, Dr. Crystal Lee Crane. Thank you for listening to us critical conversations on the challenges of our time with me, Dr. Crystal Lee Crane on TransformationTalkRadio.com. Together, we bring positive change to the world through critical conversations about social justice issues. Tune in every fourth Wednesday of every month at 3 p.m. Pacific with me, Dr. Crystal Lee Crane, and my guests. For more information about Dr. Crystal Lee Crane, please visit Crane.org and PreventionAgenda.org. Happy listening.
2: Views expressed on this program are those of the host, guests, and callers, and do not necessarily reflect the views of the station, its management, or advertisers. You're listening to Transformation Talk Radio.